3: The Parole Board is a vital part of the criminal justice system. But if you think it's anything like a courtroom, think again.
0: Well, there is a perception that the Parole Board is sort of like the Wild West. The rules are loosely applied. From the New England News Collaborative,
3: this is Next. I'm John Dankoski. We'll take you inside New Hampshire's Parole Board, salty language and all. And we'll see how a company tied to one of the worst financial deals in Rhode Island history is still working on big deals in the state.
4: The state is now basing a financial decision on a firm that gave them bad advice before. It's ludicrous.
3: And did you know that you can go searching for gold in Vermont?
4: It hasn't been an economically viable operation, but certainly people go out and find
3: flakes of gold. We'll also take you to the iconic Newport Folk Festival as it continues to grapple with the question, what is folk music?
1: Are we ruining folk music? What is real folk music? Is it possible to make real folk music in in this commercially oriented culture? It's Next.
5: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
3: This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. New Hampshire's criminal justice system has just one parole board. Its nine members decide which inmates get out on parole and which parolees return to prison. While hearings are open to the public, they take place with little oversight or public scrutiny. As New Hampshire Public Radio's Emily Corwin reports, unlike most legal proceedings, these can be surprisingly unrefined affairs. And a warning for our listeners, the story contains some crude language.
5: It's all brick and pavement outside the prison. I'm standing at a sort of side entrance. There are three locked doors between me and the place I'm going. This building used to be the warden's residence. There's a room upstairs where three parole board members sit five hours a day, twice a week. Donna Sitek chairs the board. It is probably
6: the cleanest building in the state because they, the only place I've ever been where they empty the baskets twice a day because they have all this free labor.
5: She's talking about inmates. Inside, hearings take place in what looks like a courtroom. Parole board members sit behind a wooden bench. Often, new lawyers stand up to address the board. They're told to sit down. This is not a courtroom. It often doesn't sound like one, either.
0: I know I shouldn't be chewing your ass like this, but you know damn well what I'm talking about. You know That's right.
5: parole board member Jeff Brown during a hearing in February. A month earlier, the colorful Leslie Mendenhall, another board member.
0: Well, the thing about a good car salesman is they know how to blow
6: smoke up your ass with smiling to your face yep. and telling you absolutely lies.
5: NHPR reviewed 20 hours of parole hearings from the last year. These are the voices of public officials tasked with making decisions about people's liberty and community safety. Where we expected civility, we found foul language and confrontation. Well, there
0: is a perception that uh, the parole board is sort of like the Wild West. The rules are loosely applied.
5: David Hendricks spent hundreds of hours in parole hearings as a public defender. He says lawyers take things for granted in a courtroom that go by the wayside here. Like in court, hearsay and unsworn testimony are not valid. At a parole hearing, these are seemingly fair game. Decorum he says, can also go out the window.
4: Transferring to extension 102.
5: Many hearings take place by video conference. The board has about 15 minutes to decide if people convicted of sex offenses, drug crimes, domestic violence, can live safely outside prison walls. They do this with no training or prerequisite experience. Inmates who meet the minimum requirements are almost always granted parole. I was at a hearing a few months back when Adam Smart got paroled. His mother sat next to me at the back of the room. He told the board he's struggled with addiction. He said he didn't get as much drug treatment as he would have liked behind bars. He said he's been on a waiting list for treatment in the community. And he said his counselor wasn't very helpful. At some point as he spoke, board member Leslie Mendenhall decided he was making excuses. I think you're full of sh-
0: and I think you're just trying to sell a nice, a nice boat down the river. You're full of it. It's You're all, full of yourself.
7: It's all on record, right? Every time we go on a mental health.
0: Every single time.
7: Okay. So you can and see. And what that are you taking
0: for medications? Nothing. Nothing. No. Why? Because they want to put
7: me on sleep meds for anxiety.
0: Right, because do you know one of the best things you can do for bipolar is to make sure that you get a solid amount of sleep because that helps stable your mood. I don't know if I have bipolar. What's You're sure presenting anxiety? like a bipolar.
3: It strikes me as completely inappropriate. It's certainly not the parole board's role to advise them on their me- mental health issues.
5: I met Phil Utter at another parole hearing. He's a private defense attorney. I played the exchange back for him.
3: And swearing at an inmate? How can that possibly be helpful? Um, this is a person who's going to be reintegrating into society at some point, And if you start belittling them, um, it's just wrong. It's just wrong.
5: David Hendricks, the attorney who called the board the Wild West, went into more detail.
0: You know, their job is to... Uh, demonstrate conduct that takes seriously laws, takes seriously the principles of what their job is.
5: He says he fears when a government official denigrates someone, they can lose faith in the entire system and become less likely to abide by laws. Mendenhall chose not to be interviewed for the story. The board's chair, Donna sitek says things used to be even more informal.
6: That's one of the reasons I asked to be appointed to the parole board, I didn't think the hearings were accorded the dignity that the parties and the process deserve.
5: SciTech is a former New Hampshire House speaker who published a guide to political etiquette. She calls Mendenhall's exchange inappropriate. Still, she says confrontation can be constructive for some inmates. Another board member, Brian Cashman, defended the tough talk. He said it's important to let inmates know insincerity won't be tolerated.
8: If you're going to get their attention... You have to get their attention.
5: And Cashman said feeling deceived by an inmate can make you emotional.
9: I try not to, but sometimes it just comes out.
5: Attorney David Hendricks says he knows how frustrating the job is. And he knows just how fraught the justice system can be. But being polite?
0: That is something that is not very difficult to achieve and is sort of a bare minimum that we should just frankly expect.
3: That's Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio reporting. After that story aired on NHPR at the end of June, Emily received emails from listeners who were disturbed by what they heard. Emily spoke with Parole Board Chair Donna Saitek about some of the reactions.
6: It's a board whose operations I am proud of in general.
3: Cytex says the story reached the board members and they were, quote, horrified that this is the impression that the public is going to get of the good work of the parole board. And she wants to clear something up. Uh, In your story, you
6: said that uh, we spent 15 minutes on a hearing. You don't see the 12 to 15 hours we spend preparing for it. We have to read through that stack of paper. We know what their criminal record is. We know what their counselors say. We know what their disciplinary history is. And that takes a while to plow through.
3: SciTech acknowledges that the parole board has its issues. For example, only three of the nine board members are lawyers, and during many hearings, no members with a legal background are present. SciTech says that is a problem, and she says the board has reached out to the state's attorney general for help.
6: We asked on behalf of the poor parole officers who aren't lawyers and are having to try these cases, you know, is there prosecutorial assistance available for the parole officers? We're supposed to be sitting in judgment, and it's an unfair fight. So, uh, you know, we made that inquiry, but uh, we are not hopeful that that's going to happen.
3: As for the colorful language that some board members use during hearings, Cytex says that needs to stop.
6: Certainly, uh, inappropriate language has no place on the parole board or any public board. And those members know it. That will not happen
3: again. But she says there's a difference between cursing at an inmate and just raising your voice. In this clip, she's talking about board member Mark Furlone.
6: Mark Furlone is a former state trooper, and when he puts on his state trooper voice, um, you pay attention, and that's appropriate for some people.
3: There's more to come from reporter Emily Corwin on parole in New Hampshire. Stay tuned to Next, or follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Corwin. Red Sox fans all over New England remember Curt Schilling. The star pitcher helped lead the team to two World Series titles. Since his playing career ended, though, there hasn't been as much cheering. He was fired from his job as an analyst for ESPN after a series of controversial social media comments about Muslims and transgender people. The staunch conservative now has his own radio show on Breitbart. But in the state of Rhode Island, he's also remembered for a disastrous public financing deal. The state invested $75 million of taxpayer money in Schilling's video game company, 38 Studios, and lost it all before a lawsuit clawed back most of that cash. It was one of the worst financial decisions in Rhode Island history. Yet, as Ian Donis reports, the company that served as the state's financial advisor on that deal has
2: continued doing business throughout Rhode Island. Back in 2010, the Great Recession was hammering Rhode Island. The state was desperate for jobs. In hopes of sparking a new economic sector, Rhode Island lured Kurt Schilling's video game company, 38 Studios, with a $75 million state-backed loan guarantee. We are no longer slaves to the whims of fate. That's from the only game produced by 38 Studios, Kingdoms of Amalur, Reckoning. After making that game, 38 studios ran out of the money it needed to keep going. It went bankrupt in 2012. That left Rhode Island taxpayers on the hook for a total of $88 million. Schilling told Providence radio station WPRO last year that it still hurts to think about what happened. Every time I, I reminisce or talk about this, there's
3: a lot of pain involved
2: because of the people that worked at the company and what they went through and how it ended. It, it ended in a real fiery wreck. A company called First Southwest was the financial advisor for the state of Rhode Island, and it worked with the state's Economic Development Agency on the 38 Studios deal. The state responded by filing a lawsuit accusing First Southwest and other defendants of negligence. The lawsuit alleged they withheld key details about how 38 studios would run out of money before achieving its business plan. It was not appropriate for the state to continue its relationship with First Southwest. That's Rhode Island Treasurer Seth Magaziner. He led a move to replace First Southwest as the state's financial advisor in 2015. Magaziner said it didn't make sense to keep doing business with a company being sued over the state's misadventure with 38 studios. Despite that, First Southwest has served as the financial advisor for one-third of Rhode Island's cities and towns since 2014, according to a review by the New England News Collaborative. The company, now known as Hilltop Securities, has also worked as a financial advisor for seven quasi-public Rhode Island state agencies in recent years on bond issues encompassing tens of millions of dollars. Hilltop Securities has been involved with at least two big proposals with uncertain impacts for taxpayers. The company developed a Request for Proposals, or RFP, for an unrealized plan to regionalize Providence's water supply, and Hilltop advised the city of Pawtucket on its debt for a proposed new stadium for the Boston Red Sox' top minor league team, the Paw Sox. The concept is controversial because Pawtucket and the state would borrow a combined $38 million to help pay for the stadium.
4: I think it puts the taxpayer on the hook for private ventures' profits.
2: That's the Republican leader in the Rhode Island House of Representatives, Patricia Morgan. Morgan is dumbfounded that the same fiscal advisor that worked for the state on the 38 Studios deal has a connection to the envisioned Paw Sox Stadium.
4: It's ludicrous, isn't it? The state is now basing a financial decision on a firm that they no longer will do business with because that firm gave them bad advice before. It's ludicrous. A court
2: has never determined if the company now known as Hilltop Securities gave Rodan bad advice on 38 Studios. In February, Hilltop became the last in a series of defendants to make a settlement in the state's lawsuit. The Dallas-based company agreed to pay $16 million without acknowledging any liability or wrongdoing. Hilltop Securities does business in 17 states, including Connecticut and Massachusetts. The company did not respond to multiple requests for comment for this story. Pawtucket Mayor Don Grebian doesn't draw a connection between 38 Studios and the work done by Hilltop Securities. The deal of 38 Studios was more about economic development and
3: bad decisions. You know, I don't believe that they... Uh, impact that economic development value, if you will, or that decision, they were given the numbers and then the powers to be made the decisions based
2: on um, some of the information. In fact, court documents released in the 38 Studios case reveal a lot of finger pointing about who was responsible for vetting the financials on the costly boondoggle. The company, then known as First Southwest, was paid $120,000 for its work on the deal. Grebian credits Hilltop Securities with helping to improve Pawtucket's bond rating. That makes it less costly for the city to borrow money. For that kind of work, Pawtucket paid Hilltop Securities about $22,000 in 2015. Grebian says Pawtucket has not considered hiring a different financial advisor since he took office. And he's not aware of any Rhode Island communities cutting ties with Hilltop Securities since 38 Studios went bust. It's not something that we've gotten into. You know, each community is has their own um, relationships and, and, and responsibilities.
3: Nobody has ever brought up, you know, I'm not going with Southwest because or Hilltop
2: because of. I've never heard that. Um, you know, they're still very involved and very respected throughout the state. Rhode Island Treasurer Seth Magaziner sees the issue differently. He says he was amazed by how many important contracts across state government were renewed without going out to bid.
3: I don't know how often that has been the case for financial advisors at the municipal level, but I wouldn't be shocked if that's an issue as well, that some of these relationships have existed for decades and just haven't been put out for uh, a
2: publicly competitive bid in a long time. And Magaziner says the state's selection of a different financial advisor shows how many outside firms will bid for business in Rhode Island. Now he says it's up to local municipalities and quasi public agencies to determine for themselves if Hilltop Securities is the right financial advisor. But what I would insist on is do the process the right way. Put these contracts out to bid
3: periodically at regular intervals. Have a real, open, transparent, competitive process for your contracting and
2: cast a wide net. Uh, That's what we did at the state level. It took the meltdown of 38 studios to cause the state of Rhode Island to sever its ties with the company now known as Hilltop Securities. Whether other government entities in the state will now cast a wider net for their financial advice remains an open question.
3: That's Ian Donis of Rhode Island Public Radio Reporting. Coming up, how an iconic New England music festival has shaped American folk music. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Two weeks from now, 10,000 music lovers will descend on Fort Adams in Newport, Rhode Island for the Newport Folk Festival. Throughout the years, the festival has been a focal point for discussions of what authentic folk music truly is, and in turn, Newport has shaped the public's image of American folk music for more than half a century. We spoke with Rick Massimo, a reporter who covered the festival for the Providence Journal for nine years. He's the author of a new book called I Got a Song, a History of the Newport Folk Festival, just published this June. Rick Massimo, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Uh, to start off, I want to play a clip from a performance by folk singer and civil rights activist Odetta. Uh, and let's listen, and then maybe you can talk about the role she played in the early days of Newport.
7: Rich gal out a Brogan Shoe, the poor
9: well.
3: That's Odetta performing. Tell us about the role she played in the early days of the festival, Rick.
1: Well, um, in a lot of ways, she was part of the the very beginning of the festival. She was booked at George Ween's nightclub, Storyville in Boston. And she did uh, what they were calling then the eight-day week. She would do uh, one show per night plus a matinee on Sundays. And Storyville was mostly a jazz club. And what George Ween found is that Nobody was going to the shows except the matinee on Sunday where you had a bunch of Harvard and MIT students drinking ginger ale. And he said, hmm, that's interesting that it's the young college kids. They're the ones who are crowding in to see this music. And that's when he realized that there's there's something going on here that I don't know about. He had already booked folk afternoons at the jazz festival in the past. But that was when he started to realize there was enough of a a groundswell here that maybe we can make an entire festival out of folk music.
3: And was that groundswell consisting of those young college students who would go to the club and hear Odetta? Or was, was there more to the
1: audience in those early days? Well, sure. I mean, folk music was, if not the popular music, it was certainly the main alternative to popular music at the time. Uh, You had hit records by the Kingston Trio and and the Brothers Four and the Chad Mitchell Trio and groups like that. You know, at the time, this was very much a popular music. So so tell us about the location. Obviously, the the Newport Jazz Festival has its
3: own history, but how exactly did this very famous, most famous in America, folk festival come to happen at Fort Adams in in Newport, Rhode Island? This kind of unlikely location.
1: Well, it is an unlikely location. Uh, Fort Adams is not the first location in Newport that it happened, but it started off, you know, as an outgrowth of the jazz festival, and the jazz festival started with a couple in Newport, a socialite couple, Elaine and Louis Lorillard, and. Essentially they were bored because Newport was a place where people kind of cleared out in the summer and it was there was there was not a lot going on and the two of them, especially Elaine, decided we needed to liven things up with a music festival and eventually they came around to the idea of having a jazz festival. And they had been to Storyville a few times, so it was recommended that they go see George Wien to help out with procuring talent and setting the whole thing up. And that's how the Newport Jazz Festival began. And then the Folk Festival was George Wein's idea as an offshoot from that.
3: You write about an idealistic, almost utopian period of, of the festival, run as a non nonprofit enterprise and trying to preserve a, a type of traditional American music. Can you tell us a bit about this
1: period? Sure. Well, the The initial phase of the festival was very short, 1959 and 1960, and then you had problems with rioting at the jazz festival, and that led to the expulsion of both of these festivals from Newport. When it came back in 1963, Pete Seeger was one of the guiding lights of the festival at that point. George Wien was still in charge, but he knew Pete Seeger, he respected Pete Seeger, as as everyone did. And it was Pete Seeger's idea, or more accurately, started with Toshi Seeger, let's have a non-profit festival, establish a non-profit foundation. All the performers get $50 a day, no matter who they are, no matter what their normal fee is. And then the money that comes in, we use to go and find regional music, indigenous music in the Americas that needs to be preserved. And... They they would bring it to Newport to present it, to help popularize it, but they would also give grants and support local communities who wanted to preserve this music and popularize this music in their communities. One of the best examples of that is Cajun music. An ad hoc Cajun band performed at Newport in 1964. And this was one of the first performances of Cajun music outside of Louisiana ever. And it had a huge effect because all sorts of people in Newport who had come from other places suddenly became fans of Cajun music. But also the people in the band, Dewey Balfour among them, they came back to Louisiana and said, You can't treat us like a second class culture anymore. And the foundation also funded. Uh, Cajun music festivals in Louisiana, and that began the process of, well, it didn't begin the process, but it certainly accelerated the process of Louisiana discovering that Cajun music and Cajun culture was, was valuable. It wasn't this weird music made by these backwards people. That's like one of the case studies of exactly how the nonprofit structure was supposed to work and did work.
3: Another big theme that you grapple with that's been a part of the history of Newport is this question of of authenticity and, and what real folk music looks like. When did those questions really start to to come into play with the festival?
1: There was a panel discussion on the second day of the first festival <laughs> where they said, you know, are we are we ruining folk music? What is real folk music? Is it possible to make real folk music in in this commercially oriented culture? And those discussions predated the festival by a lot. So it's been going on forever, and it's always a little bit comical that often the young generation has these new ideas about what folk music is. And a few decades later, they are the old generation fighting to hang on to their to their idea of what folk music is. When people think about
3: the Newport Folk Festival, there's a, a few key historical moments, but the one that everyone wants to talk about is when Dylan went electric.
9: Once upon a time, you dressed so fine Through the bumps of dime in your prime In you People call saying, beware, doll, you're bound to fall You thought they were all In you
3: And there's so many I suppose apocryphal stories about that day. I'm wondering what you see as a historian of the festival as the real impact of that of that moment of of Bob Dylan, you know, changing his sound in front of this audience that was accustomed to him being their hero for just carrying a guitar and harmon- harmonica with him.
1: I think that was the capper of a process that had been going on for a while. Uh, he was at Newport in 1963, 1964, and 1965. And in 1963, he was wearing, you know, a denim work shirt and singing these songs about coal mining and singing these union songs. In 1964, he's singing Mr. Tambourine Man, which you can see in the footage, uh, Pete Seeger is sitting next to him. And, you know, he likes it and he wants to like it, but he's also thinking, "What, what is going on? What is this about? What is going on here? I don't understand. And then in 1965, yeah, that's when he went electric. And, you know, Like a Rolling Stone was the number two record in the country when he took the stage that night. So it couldn't have been that much of a surprise to people that he was going to play this material and that he was going to play it in that way. But it sort of continued the process by which he was divorcing himself from the Pete Seeger ethos. It wasn't just the sound, it was, it was the song.
0: How does it feel
9: To be on your own With no direction home Like a complete unknown
1: Like a rolling stone uh, You know, one of the reactions in the wake of Dylan going electric was that, like a Rolling Stone, you know, how does it feel to be on your own, is about as far from if I had a hammer or this land is your land as you can get. And going forward from that, one of the things that happened by his performance and by the, by the records that he was putting out, people began to realize that you could make rock music with electric instruments and drums that was intelligent, that had something to say about the world around you, just like folk music did. And so a generation of fans and of singer songwriters saw that they could, they could get what they were looking for from rock and roll. So they did. And that had a, that was a, that was a drag on the folk festival and the folk scene in general.
3: Uh, the, the festival, as any long-standing institution uh, does, goes through a lot of ups and downs over the years. When it when it comes to the eighties and nineties, it turns into a very different sort of festival with some bands that fit, I suppose, the same singer-songwriter mold, but but have morphed a little bit. Let, let's listen to um, one of the big folk acts of the eighties and nineties, the Indigo Girls.
0: When I think of the road,
3: there was some great music in that era, uh, but I, I guess I wonder what the festival itself had really turned into when it had turned into this much more commercial venture
1: during this period. Well, Part of it was they were just they they had revived the festival. It was defunct from 1970 to 1985. When they got started again, it was not a nonprofit anymore. It is again, but at the time, it was not a nonprofit anymore, and they had to survive commercially, and they had a lot of different types of what we consider as folk music. You know, even back, you know, Mike Seeger he wrote in a uh, in a letter to the board in the late 60s that we need to present music that has some sort of connection in form or content to what we think of as folk music and that's a big loophole you can put a lot in there and i think the indigo girls are part of that it's very easy to say what folk music isn't once you start to talk about what folk music is then all of a sudden it's like well why aren't the indigo girls that why isn't Jim James that? Why isn't Bob Dylan going electric? Why isn't he that? You know you need to stay relevant to survive. I mean, this is this is America. If you want your festival to to last for decades, this is this is how it works.
3: What do you think the festival is now? As you say, it's it's not uh, a commercial venture. It's back to being a nonprofit. and it's one of the few, uh of its type, almost every rock festival in America and the world right now has at least one big corporate sponsor. So has it maintained some of those roots as a true folk festival with with the acts that uh, appear today?
1: Well, I think so. Uh, you know, first of all, I should say it's not true that they don't have corporate sponsors. They just don't have a titular corporate sponsor. M- much like public radio stations to be fair. <laughs> I suppose that's true. I, I guess I'm wondering if
3: you feel like the, the festival of today, the one that's happening this summer, um, holds to some of those roots of a of a true folk festival in the way that, that, that George Wien had had imagined so many years
1: ago. Well, I think so. I mean, first of all, he says it does. But second of all, what I find very defining is the audience and the way the audience comes together. You know, a lot of these performers, they're known through sort of, what I call the 21st century word of mouth—that is social media. I mean, you can go back to uh, to the avet Brothers in in 2009. I have a story in my book that that Jim Gillis from the Newport Daily News—he's walking around, and he's never heard of these guys, but he likes them. But he's never heard of them, and there's this huge crowd. I get murdered in the- He asks a couple of them, you know, how do you know about these guys? And they said, the Internet. And you have these sort of under-the-radar acts that are not as well-known, but there is a sort of organic communication going on that that helps raise them up in this scene. uh, Last question for you, and and
3: it's about the the place once again. Uh, How much do you think that that the city itself, the place itself, has shaped what this festival has become?
1: Well, I think it's shaped it a lot. In a lot of very practical ways, as well as a lot of maybe somewhat more mystical ways. For one thing, it is now at Fort Adams, which is a peninsula on an island. It's not in the middle of town anymore. When the jazz festival came back in 1981 and the folk festival came back in 1985, there was a certain set of conditions that Newport put on the festival. They had become much more amenable to tourism, and they wanted to draw people into Newport which was a little bit different from the way it was in the 60s. But they did have a, a set of rules. It had to be at Fort Adams, which sort of naturally limits the crowd to 10,000. And it had to be over by 7 o'clock. So the difference between having a festival in the middle of a city that ends at 2 o'clock in the morning and a festival at this beautiful point at which you can see the bay with boats floating on it that ends well before the sun goes down, it gives a different kind of feeling. There's just very much a different kind of vibe there. And Newport itself, the fact that it's an odd place for a festival, it has a lot of resonance. Uh, Jim James told me about the the ghosts of Newport. He thinks that it's haunted in a good way. You can be rehearsing in a mansion, you're just driving along Bellevue Avenue in these weird, beautiful old houses... The fact that that's what you're driving past on the way to go play this gig, it's a different kind of feeling. Rick Massimo is the author
3: of I Got a Song, a history of the Newport Folk Festival. He joined us from the studios of NPR in Washington, D.C. Rick, thanks so much. All right, thank you. We'll end this segment with one of the new voices at the festival, soul and r and artist Jalen Nganda. Nganda hails from Maryland and is now based out of Liverpool, England. He'll be playing Newport for the first time this year.
7: You know you make me want to holler when you call my name.
5: Holler,
3: and it starts to flame. Coming up, libraries in a time of budget austerity. It's next. Hold me tight and lead me right. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Without a state budget in place, Connecticut is operating under executive order. Governor Daniel Malloy has made cuts to get state finances in line, and among those cuts are funds for local libraries. Elsewhere in New England, public libraries are also struggling to maintain core programs like interlibrary book exchanges. Reporter Tom Verdi has more.
8: On a sultry weekday morning, patrons escape the heat and gather at the Essex Public Library in Essex, Connecticut for a weekly book discussion. So what
4: did you all think of the book? Great.
9: I loved it. No, couldn't put it down.
8: No. Yeah. Librarian Emily Boucher leads the discussion of Kazuo Ishiguro's 1989 novel, The Remains of the Day. Library copies of the book litter the table, copies on loan from other public libraries sent via the state's Interlibrary Loan System, a system which library patron Bob Phoenix routinely relies on.
9: I constantly use it. Uh, The only other resource for me is to go and buy the book. And so that if I had absolutely no access, uh, this would cost me a good deal of money uh, each year. But Governor Malloy's
8: office is also concerned about costs. As of July 1st, it cut $1.7 million in funding to the Connecticut State Library, or 18% of the library's operating expenses. That money helps support online research services, enables cardholders to physically borrow books from any public library in Connecticut, as well as interlibrary loan, a system which can actually save money in the long run, Glenn Grube is president of the Connecticut Library Association.
3: There's no reason that every library in the state needs to buy a copy of a non-bestseller book. It's much more cost-effective to buy several copies and move them around the state per demand.
8: Local legislative cuts to libraries also imperil federal funding. That money is contingent upon what are known as maintenance of effort levels by individual states. Connecticut receives about two million federal dollars a year which the State Library uses to support programs, services, and grants to local libraries. Meanwhile, that funding is itself on the chopping block. President Donald Trump's proposed 2018 budget calls for a 90% cut to the federal program, effectively eliminating money for the nation's libraries and museums altogether. Everyone everywhere is having budget issues. Jason Homer is a public librarian in Natick, Massachusetts, and a spokesman for the New England Library Association. He says that public libraries are accustomed to belt tightening, but maintaining long-standing services like interlibrary loan is becoming increasingly difficult. All libraries are committed to find different and more affordable ways to do that uh, delivery, but delivery is being the hardest hit by the changing in our economy. Funding for New England's 1,564 public libraries is as varied and distinctive as the region itself. While across most of the country, local libraries are run by counties, here it is often town by town, with funding coming from states, municipalities, private sources, or one or more of the above. After the last major fiscal crisis in 2008, some libraries in rural areas such as northern Maine were the hardest hit. Bryce Kundick, is president of the Maine Library Association.
1: Over the last five years, there have been a couple of libraries that have gone under. Um, They've had their funding just taken away by the
7: town. And so there's going to be some areas of the state where people are doing well, they support
3: their libraries well, and, you know, other places, especially if it's a place with a mill that's closed, they just feel like they have no money left to to fund the library, and so uh, some libraries have shuttered.
8: For its part, Connecticut's Office of Policy and Management, in a prepared statement, said it had an obligation to present a balanced budget to the General Assembly and that it factored in as much as it could towards funding public libraries. It's a tough balancing act that University of Vermont Library professor Selena Colburn has come to appreciate now that she is a freshman legislator representing her district in Burlington. What
7: I'm seeing as a legislator is just the disconnect in in lawmakers' understandings of what a good deal libraries are for the state of Vermont and I'd wager for other New
4: England states as well.
8: That's because libraries do more than lend books, say local librarians. These days they also serve as informational and educational centers for members of the community. Richard Conroy is executive director of Connecticut's Essex library.
3: We have um, roughly 400 programs per year that we put on that are attended by roughly 12,000 people. And that's basically double what we were doing seven or eight years ago. And a lot of that has to do with the economy and the services we provide to help people find jobs, help them with other uh, social services. So it's not just about coming in, grabbing a book, and going out again.
8: Yet at a time when austerity budgets are being proposed in Connecticut and throughout the region, it's balanced books that remain at the top of many legislators' reading lists. That's Tom Verdi reporting.
3: If you stick a shovel in the New England soil you're bound to hit rocks. But what if some of those rocks could make you rich? In the 1850s, the California Gold Rush inspired a miniature version in Vermont, and the remnants of Vermont's gold mines still exist today. For Vermont Public Radio's brave little state, Kathleen Masterson visited one of those mines, and she tried her hand at prospecting. On this map, you see all, the,
4: all these kind of gold-thick lines, and those are all the streams where they found gold. This is Marjorie Gale, Vermont state geologist. She's showing me a map from 1861. It's like a treasure hunter's dream. It marks out what seems like a river of gold following the spine of the Green Mountains, with a few areas of higher concentration in the Plymouth Bridgewater area, east of Killington Mountain. And is this trustworthy? I mean, would there be false gold, or are all these, do you think all these reports are accurate? I think they're probably all accurate. It's, it's never, it hasn't been an economically or commercially viable operation, but certainly people go out and find flakes of gold. And those flakes of gold inspired a flurry of mining activity in Vermont back in the 1850s.
9: It all really began with the uh, 1849 gold rush in California.
4: That's amateur historian Coleman Hoyt. Hoyt has been fascinated by Vermont's gold history for decades. And for the last 80 years, since he was 11, he's lived in North Bridgewater, on the optimistically named Gold Coast Road, so called for its proximity to the old mines in the area. Hoyt says the allure of the California gold rush drove many Vermonters west, though very few made much money. But he says the story goes that two of those men returned to Vermont
9: and realized that the topography of our part of Vermont was quite similar to Sutter's Mills in California.
4: Sutter's Mills was a hot spot for gold in the Sierra Nevada. And Hoyt says the men would go fishing near
9: Killington. And by gosh, they found little sparkling nuggets in our brooks in Bridgewater and Plymouth. And that started the, the gold rush here.
4: And to this day, you can still walk through the forest and poke around the remnants of the old mines.
7: Uh, we're at uh, Camp Plymouth State Park, and we're going to set up the old Jeep trail that leads to the uh, the Henry Fox Mine along Buffalo Brook.
4: Nelson Alinsky is a gold panning hobbyist, and he's a self-taught Vermont gold historian. By studying old photos and maps, he's found the foundation of some mine buildings and the underground tunnels.
7: And you won't believe it, but welcome to the Fox Mine.
4: Whoa, we're in it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh,
7: yeah, I mean, people literally walk by this area.
4: He pulls out an old photo. It shows how there used to be several brick buildings alongside the river. A mill for crushing quartz chunks, housing for the workers, and the office of the assayer, who was like a prospector. This was the assayer's office. So we're in what's left of what, would you say, like three, four feet tall? Yeah. Yeah. Basement?
7: Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it would have been the foundation for that.
4: Then there's the remnants of the mine shaft itself. Yeah, here's the other. Oh, other rail. Yeah. Uh He taps the twisted iron railroad tie, the only remnants of the tracks that went into the now-collapsed horizontal mine shaft. The rails supported horse-drawn carts, which varied piles of ore out of the underground mine.
7: Um, it actually travels for 300 yards up the mountain to where the uh, the vertical shafts are.
4: And it, was it big enough that the cart went in the mountain?
7: Yeah, totally went in. Wow. Yeah, you can see this is this is all that broken up schist material that they were working. Not,
4: Even more astounding is the vertical mine shaft that they were able to connect to this tunnel. We huff and puff up the steep hillside, and then suddenly, with no warning, Whoa! in the middle of the nondescript forest floor is a gaping 20-foot-wide hole that prospectors carved by dynamite blasting. Holy cow!
7: Yeah, this is uh, what everybody calls the 45-degree shaft. connects to the other two, but...
4: Whoa! Yeah! I mean, it looks kind of sparkly. Am I just getting the gold fever?
9: I think you're getting gold fever. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that.
4: <laughs> yeah,
7: this wow. is a huge hole in the earth.
4: <laughs> yeah, and again, so just dynamite and chisels? Yeah. Wow, because yeah. this one's at least 20 feet wide. Yeah. And then who knows how big the actual proportions yeah, A lot proportions of sweat are.
7: and a lot of backache.
4: <laughs> Alinsky is talking about all the manpower that went into building this mine. Because after some prospectors found gold flakes, there was a mini-boom in gold mining activity in the Plymouth area, according to local historical societies. Coleman Hoyt says a small but vibrant community grew up around the men who came to work the gold mines. Called Plymouth Five Corners, the town had a hotel, a school, and a dance hall. Photos from the Plymouth Historical Society show women in floor-length dresses and hats, sitting in the shade while watching men digging in the riverbank, scooping silt and gravel into a sluice to wash and separate,
9: looking for gold. Oh, in Bridgewater, there were over 100 people working in gold mines. That's more people than worked on farms. It was the major occupation in Bridgewater and in Plymouth.
4: Locals say that today, Plymouth Five Corners is a virtual ghost town, The only remnants are the numerous cellar holes where homes used to stand. By some accounts, Vermont had 40 to 50 mines in its heyday. But to be clear, a mine could refer to anything from dynamite-blasted piles of quartz to an actual mine shaft dug into the earth. And no matter how you count the number of mines, the question of whether prospectors made any money from Vermont gold is not under debate. State geologist Marjorie Gale says all her predecessors have been skeptical of the practice. She quotes one of them from 1930. Again, let me say that in my opinion, it is entirely useless to throw away money, time, and labor seeking gold in Vermont. <laughs> <Excellent. 1930 laughs> and that's 1930. That's also in 1928 and 1929. Over and over, they just say, "Stop! You're not. You shouldn't be investing in it. You know, you might find some, but you're never going to get rich." Basically, both geologists and eventually prospectors determined that while there is gold in Vermont. There aren't deposits large enough to make enough money to pay for all the digging and crushing and sluicing. Still, Coleman Hoyt points out that a few people did make money off Vermont gold.
9: There are two ways you can make money out of gold mining in Vermont.
4: The first, he says, is to do what he did for a hobby, to give tours of old gold
9: mines. And the other way, of course, is to uh, sell stock in a gold mine.
4: And this happened in the 1880s. There still exists a 46-page typed stock prospectus selling shares in the Rooks Mining Company. Though later state reports suggest it was nothing more than a get-rich scheme. Still, while the industry may have been but a flash in the pan, so to speak, the legacy of Vermont's gold mining continues to this day, with skilled hobbyists like Nelson Alinsky still working the rivers and teaching others how to pan for gold. Back in Plymouth State Park, about a mile downstream from the old Rooks Mine, Alinsky breaks out his shovel and gold pan. He picks a river bend where the water would have likely deposited some of the heavy metal and starts digging. Okay, so we're down to like a quarter cup of soil, silt.
7: Yeah, and that's uh, that's actually a piece of a garnet right there.
4: Oh, cool. And then, without any fanfare, he struck gold.
7: Uh, you can barely see him. Just one tiny
4: little. You'd think he'd be hooping and hollering, but he was calm. I was pretty excited, but tried to keep my cool.
5: Oh
7: man. And we'll see if we can get it down it's a like little bit. A pencil
5: bit.
4: point of gold.
7: Yeah, I like little pieces like that um, because it means it's not far from the source. You uh, see, how it sticks to the bottom of the pan.
4: Yeah.
7: It's right there.
0: Wow. Should've okay. Been.
4: There's no, a couple. Yeah. The tiny specks are barely visible to me, but Alinsky assures me it's gold. He can tell by the glint and by how heavy the material is. He demonstrates by shaking the pan.
7: Watch it. See it?
4: Right there?
9: Yeah. No, it's look- everything
7: else around it. So it moves. And the gold And, and the gold, gold glues itself to the bottom of the pan. That's how so you know it's gold. yeah. Oh. And uh, believe it or not, ten of those make <laughs> a dollar.
4: So... It takes a lot of gold. (laughs) Still, Alinsky and his wife spend many summer weekends panning for gold. And he teaches a gold panning class for any would-be enthusiasts. He's mastered the art of reading a river and finding those milky quartz veins that may contain gold. Alinsky says Yankees are tight-lipped about how much gold they've collected. But he gathers about an ounce a year. And it's as close to pure as you'll find. 23.5 carats. But Alinsky says he wouldn't sell it. For him, it's just about the hunt and spending time outdoors with family and teaching others about Vermont's gold history.
3: That's Kathleen Masterson reporting for Brave Little State, a podcast from Vermont Public Radio. To see historical photos from Vermont's gold rush, head to our website, nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Carmen Baskoff and NPR in Washington. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.